Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author, psychologist, and professor, Dr. Lori Mintz. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Today, we are going to talk about becoming cliterate, not literate, but cliterate. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Lori. For those that don't know, Dr. Lori Mintz is a feminist author, therapist, professor, and speaker whose life's work has been committed to helping people live more authentic and joyful lives through the art of science and psychology. She is the author of Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, and A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship. As a professor at the University of Florida, she teaches both undergraduate human sexuality, mentors graduate students, and has published dozens of research articles and multiple chapters in academic books. For over 25 years, Dr. Mintz has also maintained a private practice helping people with general and sexual issues. Hello, Lori, and how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and I'm actually quite excited about all the things we have to talk about today. Before we talk about sex, I sort of wanted to talk about talking about sex. You know, this is not explicitly a sex podcast. So many of our listeners aren't used to talking about it so openly and freely. And I want to almost talk about how we kind of got to where we are today, because we have somewhat of a paradoxical approach to sex in our culture in that it is both simultaneously overly expressed and overly repressed. You know, for example, seeing a nipple on on television is seen as something more terrible than a gruesome act of violence. Well, you flip the channel and see advertisements and artists using sex to sell all sorts of things. But getting comprehensive sex education in school is, is an incredibly uphill battle. And it also seems like one step forward, two steps back, you know, with the recent Supreme Court decision, which allows people to make an exemption for birth control. Simultaneously seems very forward and backwards. So how do we get to where we are today? That's a great question. And I, I agree with your assessment. We get really, really mixed messages about sex in our culture. And especially when it comes to women's sexuality, I believe, in terms of women's bodies being highly sexualized, used to sell products, supposed to be a certain way for the male gaze, but then women's pleasure and sexual autonomy are not taught about. You know, how we got here is like a whole conversation in our, you know, our roots of our culture and puritanical roots and such, and many other forces. But I think what is perpetuating this mixed culture today is a combination of porn, and I am not anti-porn, but it isn't, shouldn't be used for sex ed, which it is. And as you mentioned, our lack of comprehensive sex education. 
It's true. They work hand in hand, right? Because there's no comprehensive sex education, people will turn to porn and learn things about porn that are just simply unrealistic. Exactly. I mean, if we watched a, you know, a action movie and someone was jumping off of a roof, like a lot of parents would know to say to kids, hey, this is filmed. This is fake. Don't try that. But we don't have anything like that around porn or porn literacy. And so what we see and are bombarded with are false images of what sex actually is and should be and can be. So, you know, one thing you see in porn is people just hopping right into bed together. And you don't see any communication about desires or likes or dislikes or STD, STI statuses, that sort of thing. But you as a sex educator also spend a lot of time simply getting people to talk frankly and openly about sex. So my first question is, why is it so hard for people to talk about sex, particularly with even the most intimate partners, to bring up the things that they enjoy in the bedroom? Yeah, it it is so hard for people. I hear this all the time. Like, I couldn't talk about that. That's too personal, even with a person that they're being intimate with. And to me, it goes still goes back to education. Nowhere in our educational system are we taught good communication skills. And sexual communication is simply a subset of good communication. And it also goes back to those false images that you're talking about. We think that sex should be something that just flows perfectly and smoothly without communication because that's what we see in images. But the truth of the matter is that sexual communication is an essential skill for sexual pleasure, for consent, for orgasm. You know, I I often tell my clients, I promise you, it is much easier to learn to talk about sex than it is to learn to read minds or to continue (laughs) to endure sex that is not pleasurable for you. This is a learnable skill. I love that phrase. It's much easier to talk about sex than learn how to read minds. Yes. Okay, so we're not taught sexual communication. So how do we begin for the person who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable, like right now, sharing their desires with their partner? How do we improve our sexual communication skills? And what are some things we might want to start talking about with our partner? Well, I think the best way to do it is to practice, to learn, to read sex positive literature to read books about sexual communication or books that have chapters on sexual communication and learn it and practice it. I even have clients who will write it down and then practice it if they're really scared. But I mean, I honestly would recommend, you know, taking the dive, doing it and using good general communication skills, which include meta communication, which is talking about talking. So saying something like, I have something to talk to you about, but I'm kind of nervous. It's scary to talk about this. And then using I statements, owning what you want rather than blaming or asking questions that aren't really questions like, do you like our sex life? It's not really a question, is it? Because the the asker is either happy and wants to know if you are too, or they're not happy. So instead of using questions that aren't questions or blaming you statements, you are, you never kiss me. I statements and loving, affectionate I statements, like I really love you. I like our sex life. 
And I'd really like to improve it. I'd like to talk about blah, blah, blah. I'd like to try blah, blah, blah. And a couple of books, including my own, both of my books, that's sexual communication is so important. And that's why in both of my books, I have entire chapters on both general communication and then applying those skills to sexual communication and more specific sexual communication skills. Because as I'm fond of saying, communication is the bedrock to make your bedrock. (laughs) all right i'm tweeting that after this episode (laughs) communication is the bedrock that makes your bed rock so you mentioned that pornography creates a lot of false images around sex and one of those false images is the lack of communication around things that we want and before we get into the things we want to start doing let's continue to dispel some of these false images because you also dispel, you know, in your writing and you're teaching a lot of myths around, you know, how sex works and you like to replace those myths with science-based facts. So I'm wondering, what are some sexual myths that people still believe in? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> I'll just say a couple. You already talked about one that we shouldn't have to talk. We should know what to do and do it just right. And we've already hopefully dispelled that for some listeners. Another myth is that sex should be spontaneous, and it is actually rarely spontaneous. It's often well orchestrated, but not spontaneous. And I can debunk, go into debunking that further if you like. Another big myth is that vibrators are addictive. They're not, and they're simply tools, and women who use them have easier and more frequent orgasms. And a big myth that I work on uh, dispelling in becoming clitorate is that women should have orgasms from penetrative sex or, you know, intercourse when indeed anywhere from only four to 20% of women can have orgasms from simply penetrative sex, simply thrusting alone, and the rest need clitoral stimulation, hence the title of my book becoming clitorate. So those are a few, just a few of the many, many myths that I think are important to dispel. Mm -hmm. No, I love those myths that sex doesn't need to be spontaneous, because I know that also helps a lot of, you know, say married couples who have very busy professional lives and and children that they, it can be very helpful to schedule like Monday night is now our sex night where we get the babysitter and go out or something like that. Absolutely. And sometimes I have trouble convincing people about scheduling sex. I like to call them trysts instead, because that's a sexier word, which is just a planned meeting between lovers, which the lovers can be a long-term married couple, even though that word has some associations with affairs. It doesn't have to. And what I tell people is think about, especially like married couples with two kids, jobs, no time for sex. You know, I talk to them about, would you ever meet a friend for coffee or go to the movie without putting it in your calendar? No, you have to carve out time to do it. And think about, for many people, pre-dating times, you know, You got dressed up, you put on your nice clothes, you took a shower, maybe put on nice underwear, you flirted all night long. Oh my, then the evening ended ended in sex. That was not spontaneous. That was well orchestrated, so well orchestrated it looked spontaneous. But sex really doesn't need to be 
spontaneous and in fact for tired, busy, stressed out couples that actually setting aside the time can help you save the energy for it, can be exciting as you think about it, plan for it throughout the day. And it also takes away that all too common tension of, are we going to do it tonight? Oh no, I hope not. I'm too tired. Hmm. Plan out your trysts. Yes. All right. So we can't talk about our sex before it happens. It doesn't need to be spontaneous. The third myth that you mentioned is vibrators are not addictive. So let's just talk about vibrators real quick because, you know, I know you're a feminist author. You talk a lot about getting women to uh, feel empowered in their desires. But what would you tell a man who's, who's afraid that they're going to be replaced by an electronic device that can move in ways that they can't move and they can no longer please their partner? Yes. Well, so what I like to tell male clients is several things. First of all, let me share the research. Women who use vibrators have easier and more frequent orgasms. And a male partner's acceptance of his female partner's vibrator use is highly correlated with her sexual satisfaction. And using a vibrator can bring you more pleasure too, because it will enable you to take the pressure off of your penis, which causes a lot of problems um, when men's penises and them feel pressured. And basically it will allow you to focus on your own pleasure. You can do a turn-taking model where you pleasure her, then you orgasm through intercourse or other means. She can use the vibrator on herself during intercourse. And this myth that it will replace you is highly related to the myth that you are responsible for giving your partner an orgasm through lasting long and thrusting hard which the vast majority of women don't orgasm from. So bringing a vibrator in can really free you up even more and you'll be giving more pleasure and in a way that works. And finally, I have a metaphor that I include in my book that I also love to share with people who are thinking about vibrators and afraid of them. If you and your partner went to the swimming pool and you had a raft in the pool and you were kissing and swimming and jumping off the raft, jumping on the raft, you know, just having a great day. You wouldn't go home and call your friend and say, oh my gosh, my raft and I had such a great day in the pool. Oh, <laughs> and my boyfriend was there too. No, you, you wouldn't even mention the raft because it's just a tool to enhance the experience between two people. And the same is true of a vibrator. Hmm. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful metaphor. Absolutely. Okay, so we're getting women to buy more vibrators, learn how to use them, and also getting men to not only accept it, but also welcome it and realize it's going to increase their partner's pleasure and their pleasure. And this should also help women to have more orgasms, which gets to our fourth myth, which you just said, uh, the myth that women should have orgasms from penetrative sex. And you said that only 4 to 20% of women can have sex from penetration alone. Can have orgasms from penetration. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A little Freudian stuff there, right? Um, so, yes. I mean, it depends on how the question is asked in the research, but like this goes back to Freud, who really caused a lot of damage, although the, the, there were problems way before Freud. He doesn't need all of the blame, but. He made the most ridiculous statement that orgasms from stimulation of the vagina are mature 
orgasms from stimulation of the clitoris are immature. And he basically said that as a woman gets older, she'll transfer the feelings in her clitoris to her vagina, which is ludicrous. We don't change our biology as we age. That's like saying, well, when you grow up, you'll learn to, you know, breathe out of your ear instead of your nose. It just doesn't happen. And we've been living with this myth ever since. And it's so, this is myth is so prevalent in movies and porn. You know, they show women having fast and fabulous orgasms from penetration alone. And that is simply not reality for the vast majority of women. So let's talk about the reality uh, for a vast majority of women, because in your book and in your writings, you write a lot about the challenges that women experience in their sexual lives including faking orgasms to get things over with, faking their pleasure to inflate their partner's ego, experiencing pain during sex but not being willing to talk about it, and also just not being able to attain orgasm or not or having trouble attaining orgasm. So my first question is, well, how how bad is it for women in in their sexual lives? Yeah, pretty bad, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say, although I do think it's getting better. And it's not bad for all women. And there is evidence that is interestingly, as women age, things get better. And it's because they get more comfortable with what they need. They get more comfortable with sexual communication. But I tell the people in my class, you don't have to wait till you're old, (laughs) older to embrace these attitudes and ideas. But things are pretty bad. Over 70% of women report faking orgasm. I can't recall the exact statistic right now, but I think it's somewhere in the 60% of women say they've had pain during penetrative sex, which they have not said anything about to their partner. And it's all related to me to the same myth. A lot of women think, oh, I should, you know, first of all, you see no warm up in, in porn, right? Or movies, they just, you know, fool around a little and you know, uh, the man puts his penis in and the woman's like having a great orgasm. And in reality, if a woman's not aroused enough before penetration, it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot mm-hmm. because of no lubrication, because of something called vaginal tenting, which moves the cervix out of the way. But the bottom line is we see these images. We think many women think I should be like that. And they're not, and they feel abnormal. And so they fake or they hold their pain in silence. And, um, you know, I think really, truly sex education could solve these problems. Hmm. Well, fortunately, you're doing good work in the world. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So you mentioned pain during penetrative sex, and you mentioned the myth that penetrative sex should be uh, the way to orgasm. And as a result, there is what's known as the orgasm gap or what is sometimes called the pleasure gap. So tell our listeners, what is this orgasm gap? So thanks for asking about that. And that is what I'm out to close um, with this education. It's the finding across multiple, multiple studies that when cisgender men, because we don't have enough research on non-gender conforming individuals, so that's people born with penises who identify as being a man, have a sexual encounter with cisgender women, people born with vaginas who identify as women, the men are having way more orgasms than the women are. Just to illustrate in one study where they didn't ask the context of the sex, was it 
uh, hookup sex, casual sex, relationship sex, 39% of women versus 91% of men said they always or usually always orgasm during a sexual encounter. And those numbers are way worse when we talk about casual sex. In studies I've conducted, 55% of men versus 4% of women say they orgasm during casual first-time hookup sex. And we think, oh, well, it's all better in relationships. No, it gets better, but it never closes altogether. The stats there are about 64 to 85%. So no matter where we look, the men are having way more orgasms than the women are. Okay, 4% of hookups. Yep. Wow. Yeah, dismal. It is dismal. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what can we do about this orgasm gap? Okay, well, I will answer that, but if if I may, can I share another statistic that could really help uh, underscore this, that the, people say, well, it's just because women's orgasms are difficult or elusive or, you know, women have to trust their partner. It's not any, that's what it's about. And two statistics speak to that for me. First of all, women's orgasms are not difficult or elusive when women masturbate. reach orgasm easily and within minutes. And interestingly, there was one study that really shed light on this. It was a study of bisexual women who were having one night stands or hookups with women or men. And they said that in their first time hookups with men, now these are the same women, they orgasm 7% of the time with women, like 80% of the time. So this is not about women's orgasms being difficult or elusive, and this gets to what we can do about it. It is because in heterosexual sexual encounters, we um, focus all around intercourse. Even our language, that we use the word sex and intercourse as if they were one and the same. We call everything that comes before foreplay, even though those are the activities of prolonged, more likely to bring women to orgasms. So What can we do about it besides good sex ed, which would solve the problems, but in our own bedrooms, it is, it comes down to women getting the same type of stimulation with a partner as they get alone, not rocket science, but often not done and not, you know, proceeding along this, you know, foreplay just to get her ready, intercourse, male orgasm, maybe female faked orgasm, sex over. And to truly empower couples to consider women's way of orgasm just as important as men's way of orgasm. So when women are by themselves and with other women in sexual encounters, they have a very high percentage of orgasms, but the interaction with men it ends up being much less. Exactly. And because there's so much emphasis basically on penetration as sex versus all the other things we can do in the bedroom. Exactly. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) What are some ways we might want to like change, you know, the language, like when people think of sex, you know, like, did you have sex last night? You know, they think, you know, did the P go in the V, right? So you talk, you know, a bit about uh, in your writings about the everyday sexism in our language and also just how the language that we use focuses on penetration as, as the ultimate sex act. What can we start to change about how we talk about sex and how we uh, use words around sexuality to bring more equality into the bedroom? 
Yes. So, and I love, I'm a big advocate of language use. Language reflects and perpetuates the problems. And to not use the word sex in intercourse as if they were one of the same, that to use the word sex for the whole of a sexual encounter and to use words, other words to describe the acts, whether it's, you know, the F word or intercourse or whatever you want to use and stop using the word foreplay for clitoral stimulation. Just call it that, you know, oral sex, manual stimulation. Just use the words, even though it may sound clinical. It's more accurate. And I also strongly, strongly encourage us to stop calling all of women's genitals a vagina because the vagina is the canal where penises go in and babies go out. And the hole is called the vulva. And that is the area which contains the external portion of the clitoris and the inner lips, which are analogous to the head of the penis. Because by doing that, we're linguistically erasing the part of ourselves that give us the most pleasure. And we're also calling our entire genitals by the part that bring men the pleasure rather than ourselves the most pleasure. Linguistically erasing. That's a good phrase. So we want to move away from penetration and start to become clitor, start to understand the anatomy for female bodies, understanding their own anatomy and for male bodies also understanding that there are erogenous zones beyond just going inside. And then what's the next step after that? Once we kind of, we know the anatomy, so to speak, and we understand the language, how our own language uh, distorts all the ways that we can have fun in the bedroom. What's the next step to bringing more, more pleasure? Well, there's several steps. One is communication, which we've covered. The other is mindfulness, which is really hard for people in bed, but it's so essential and it's a, it's such an important skill in life in general. Mindfulness is simply having your mind and body in the same place. So basically, so many times our body is doing something and our mind is somewhere else. So, you know, someone might be, you know, ha- having their partner touch them and thinking, do I smell okay? Am I taking too long? What's going, you know? all of that. And that happens in daily life too. You ever, we've all had the experience, I think of chatting with a friend and then realizing, oh my gosh, we just missed the last five sentences because our mind wandered away. And so meditation, yoga, there's lots of practices that help you keep your mind and body in the same place. And importantly, noticing when your mind wanders and bringing it back to your body and practicing that outside of the bedroom and then applying it to your sexual encounters has been shown to increase pleasure, orgasm, sexual function. So that's something people can do on an individual basis. To stop thinking about sex while we're talking about the mind, so that's mind and body in the same place, but the way we think about sex, stop thinking about it as a linear thing. We do this, 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 and this, and then the goal is orgasm. Most sex therapists will tell you that a pleasure focus, immersing in the pleasure is way more important than the goal. And then finally, kind of putting it all together, just changing the way we do sex. Take a lesson from the lesbian playbook, basically, which is a turn-taking model. I'll take care of you, then you take care of me. And in doing so, we can each fully immerse in our pleasure and not have all that performance anxiety. Or as Ian Kerner says in his wonderful book, She Comes First, it's a turn-taking model, although she doesn't, and his isn't 
oral sex how-to manual, and he really advocates a man bringing his partner to orgasm from oral sex and then having intercourse or whatever gets him off. But it doesn't have to be oral sex. Any kind of turn-taking model is extremely helpful. There's so much overlap, you know, what I'm hearing from you and what makes for a good sex life. It also just makes for a good relationship. You mentioned, okay, our next step is communication. And earlier you even mentioned that sexual communication is just a subcategory of the overall communication skills that we want in our relationship. And then you mentioned, so for the next step is communication. The step after that is mindfulness. So simply being present, you know, with our partner, which is also extraordinarily beneficial to our relationship. So how important is a good sex life to the success and happiness in a relationship overall? Well, that, yes. And I, I underscore what you say. Like pe- people think of sex as a separate thing and it's so many of the things you're exactly right that make a good sex life, make a happy life and a more present centered, connected life. And there are couples who are happy and love each other and are good partners with not without a good sex life. But the research is pretty darn clear that a good sex life enhances overall happiness, overall self-esteem, overall marital satisfaction, overall physical and emotional health. So I think it's very, very important. And I also, very few couples, however, will go through a long-term marriage without a sexual problem. And what I like to really emphasize is what happens often, because we're so afraid of talking about it, those problems get way worse than they would be if we would have addressed them early on by talking about them, by seeing a therapist, if you know that if you can't solve it on your own, that sexual problems are to be expected, just like disagreements about money or children or anything else, and using those good conflict resolution skills and making compromises and discussions. Um, sex problems are very solvable. So I love what you just said. The research is clear that a good sex life enhances one, overall happiness, two, one's self-esteem, three, overall satisfaction in the relationship, and even our own health. Yeah, physical health. There's some wonderful physical health benefits of a good sex life. Okay, so you just said that sexual problems in any relationship, you know, even long-term marriages are to be expected, just like other problems we might encounter in the relationship. So what are some sexual problems that you find relationships tend to encounter? Well, one of the most common ones is mismatched sexual desire. One person wanting sex more than the other. Different types of things that interest you versus don't interest your partner. Then there's our our two pretty big couple issues I see, mismatched desire and mismatched interest. But then individual sexual problems also enter a woman who is not orgasmic or a man suffering from either delayed or premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction or a woman suffering from a sexual pain disorder. So it can be an individual issue that then affects the couple or it can be, you know, one of these more couple, like how do we compromise? What do we like? What do we want to do? How often do we want to do it type issues? Mm-hmm. So let's tackle some of these real quick. So you said one of the most common issues you hear is mismatched sexual desire. So indeed, if you have a relationship, let's say, you know, a couple walks into your office and one partner uh, doesn't need to be gender, but just one partner 
just wants way more sex than the other one. And they always feel like they're pressuring their, their partner into sex and kind of feeling guilty afterwards. How do you deal with such an issue? Well, commun- we're back to communication and compromise. Often what happens is that the low desire person, the, se- the high desire person gets sick of asking and being turned down. So stops asking and it just wreaks havoc. So it's, it's a pretty simple conversation that I have with people, which is now it's always not so simple to implement, but, you know, explaining the positive benefits of a sex life, discussing what's your ideal frequency and making a compromise. You know, if someone wants to have it once a month and someone else wants to have it four times a week, what's a compromise that you can both live with? And sometimes I share the research that the research has um, shown that once a week is sort of the, the, the ideal number for the health and relationship benefits. You don't benefit from any more. But anyway, I, you know, I have couples who agree on once a month, some that agree on twice a week. And then, okay, let's find a time that works and let's schedule it and let's talk about how it's going to go down and what it's going to be like. And often what happens is the high desire, the low desire person then can relax and go, okay, he doesn't, he's not, or she's not going to chase me around other nights. This is the night. And then I talk to the low desire person. Oh, this is another myth we should have busted, but I'll bust it now. The idea that you need to be horny to have sex, because then I'll, people will say, well, you know, I'm never horny. What happens if it's the night and I'm not horny? And I tell people that's another myth that we go from being physically horny to having a sexual encounter to excitement to orgasm to done. That for many people with low sexual desire, they just don't feel physically horny. But that's okay because you can reverse the equation. You can have sex to get horny rather than waiting to be horny to have sex. And that you can use your receptive desire, which is the idea in your head, like, gee, I don't feel like it physically, but I know I'll feel better afterwards. And once it gets going, it will be good. And so kind of busting all those myths of spontaneous sex and needing to be horny and compromising and planning. And I will tell you that has worked with many, many couples with incredibly high degree of success. So helpful. Just again, just putting it in the calendar. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. So another uh, common issue you mentioned was mismatched sexual desire or having like sort of different interests. One partner might be into certain activities that the other one isn't quite up for. Now, I have heard of the advice from Dan Savage that partners should be good giving and game, right? So we talked about being good and understanding anatomy. We talked about being giving and willing to take turns for each other's pleasure, taking a page from the lesbian playbook, as you said, which I really enjoyed. And then we have game, which sort of means being up for things. Would you recommend being game for things you might not quite be into? And how might you deal with sort of different sexual interests in a partnership? Well, there's a really well-known sex therapist named David Schnark, who basically says sex between couples is like two overlapping circles. You have things you really like. This is like your circles, everything that you like, their circles, everything they like, and where they overlap is what you do together. And what I talk to people about is that no one should ever, ever say yes to anything that they will find aversive, painful, repugnant. 
But if it's just like, "Mm, I don't know if I'm going to like that. I'm a little anxious to try it. Then I encourage people stretch your boundaries. And another myth is that once you're in the middle of it, you can't stop. No, I tell people you can stop any time. So I do encourage people to stretch their boundaries and to try things, but to talk about them before, during, and after, but to never do anything that they would find aversive. And I have worked with couples who have such mismatch interests that they do, they are not sexually compatible. And that happens. We don't all like the same things. You know, I had one classic example was a couple where one was really into kinky sex, BDSM, and the other really found that absolutely like something that was horrifying to them. They would never want to do that. And they just couldn't work around it. Other couples might find, well, I like it a little bit. I'll try it. I'll be game for it. So it, it's, it's, it's really all about communication, stretching your boundaries. But again, to repeat, never to do anything that's painful to you that, that you don't like, that's aversive. Now, your, your answer reminds me of sort of a challenge that I have also with working with people is trying to discern between somebody's authentic sexual desires and comfort level with certain activities and cultural conditioning Right. We talked earlier about, you know, all the the myths that we have around how sex is supposed to happen and also that we live in a bit of a sex negative culture. So how do you discern between, say, somebody's aversion to a certain activity as, well, this is a this is a really important boundary that should be respected and shouldn't be pushed to actually like this might be an idea we want to challenge a little bit. Like, let's say, you know, as as a man, I listen to this podcast and I'm like, oh, we should I should totally get my partner to use a vibrator. And then my partner says, what? No, I should totally be able to, you know, orgasm with penetration. Like vibrators are for women who have trouble or something like that. You know, how do we how do we sort of break through cultural conditioning around how sex should and supposed to work? What is wrong and what is right to someone's authentic sexual desires? Yeah, it's tricky. I think you're bringing up a really important point that it is really tricky. And I really try um, as I'm, you know, sure you do to really respect my cult- my client's cultural background and beliefs. And at the same time, what I try to help clients see and I talk to them about is science. Like, let's look at the scientific facts here. So, you know, telling someone, so they might say, like, I learned growing up that, you know, my worth as a man was dependent on my ability to bring a woman an orgasm through intercourse and that real men do that. And I don't want to use a vibrator. I'd say, okay, I totally get that. Tell, you know, I'd want to know more. Who told you that? When did they tell you that? What do you know about their sexuality? Did they ever tell you anything else in your life that you later found to be not true for you? Really exploring and getting deep, not just taking it face value, respectfully questioning where the messages came from, and then saying, would it be okay with you if I shared the scientific literature with you? Because some of what you were taught, it doesn't agree with what science says. And can I give you a study to read even? Or can I give you a book based in science to read? And then coming back and talking again. So now you have your cultural upbringing, you have your messages, 
But now you have this science thing. Like, what do you make of that? How do you reconcile those? Where are you landing with it? And just talking it through. Okay. So that's really important distinction, right? Okay. We have certain cultural conditioning. We have certain religious beliefs. But the science is, I want to say truth. Some some point of the truth that we can that we can rely on. So let's just take this one step further, because if we're using science to dispel certain cultural cultural and sex negative beliefs, what does science say about BDSM? What does science say about some of the alternative uh, sexual desires that like cross-dressing or something that somebody may have? Great question. And there's been some really interesting studies that have come out recently about BDSM. And basically what they find is that the couples who practice it have better sexual communication because they have to talk about it before, during, and after to set their boundaries, that they have more orgasms, more arousal, that it is not correlated with problematic personality constellations, that in fact, there's some strengths personality strengths, openness to new experiences, that kind of thing. So scientifically, we have absolutely no basis to condemn BDSM. And in terms of cross-dressing or anything like that or any kinks, my stance is if it is consensual and it's not bringing you distress, it's fine. It's when it's bringing you distress that we need to look at it. Is the distress due to shame or something else? And certainly anything that is not consensual is hugely problematic in no matter what, you know, there's no way to slice that one for me. So if it's something between two consenting adults, a lot of times people just need to let go of the shame. Is it fun? Is it enjoyable? Are you both into it? Then sure, go for it. It all comes down to authenticity and communication, doesn't it? I've also read that couples who practice BDSM report higher levels of satisfaction in sex lives, but not because there's anything inherently better about using handcuffs in the bedroom than than the sheets that you have, um, but because they're just better communicators. Right. They have to communicate better. Do you want to do this? What's your safe word? How will I know when you want to stop talking about it afterwards? It's a model for how we all should be. Let's talk before what we're going to do. Let's stop if we're not enjoying it. And let's process it afterwards. How was that for you? How could it have been better? Let's try something new today. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Lori, for coming onto the show. I, I know I learned so much, and I'm sure your, your students are, are very grateful to have you uh, as their professor. And I wanted to ask you a close out by asking you kind of a twist on the question I like to ask all my guests focusing on sexuality today. So my question is, what do you wish everyone knew about sex? Ah. Well, I love that question. And it's the answer is so obvious, but so silly. I think what's popping in my head. And it's the one thing we don't tell kids in sex ed. It's supposed to be fun and pleasurable that you're doing this for fun. It's a normal, natural. I hate the word normal. So I'm sorry it popped out of my mouth, but I'll go with it anyway, that it is an essential, important, fun, life-giving part of life. And If it works for you, as long as it's consensual, have no shame, just enjoy. It's supposed to be fun, pleasurable, essential, important, fun. 
Oh, I said fun twice. <laughs> I did too, though. That's <laughs> but I, I posed a question the other day to my Instagram followers. I said, "Has any did anybody ever tell you sex was supposed to be pleasurable? And the response was resounding, like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Like, no, no one ever told me that in all my learning. They said it was dangerous. Don't get an STI. You know, all the me- negative messages. If somebody just would tell you it's supposed to be fun. There you go. Thank you so much. So important. Have fun. Feel good. Be happy. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a song. (laughs) Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciated talking to you and your very insightful questions. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you and work with you and how do they get in touch with you? And do you have any offerings you want people to know about? You can look me up at my website, which is sort of the link to everything, which is www.drlaurimintz.com. So D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z.com. And you can find links there to everything, including both my books, where which are available anywhere books are sold, Audibles, um, Kindles, hardcover, paperback. And I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. All those are linked. And actually, for anyone who wants to tune in, I do a lot of Instagram lives, generally on Thursdays. And I am often having guests on, you know, sharing educational things. And that's the place to find me and and including current offerings. Amazing. So prolific you are. Thank so really, you. You're so prolific and you're so busy. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to come onto the show and sharing your wisdom with us all. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you take all the myths and incorrect sexual images that's put on us by society and our culture and what we see in the media and porn to just find a happy, fun and pleasurable and exciting sex life for you and whoever you wish to be with in your life. Thanks again, Lori. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 